Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, asking for your help during this Lenten and Easter season. Support from our listeners is vital and allows us to bring you and many others high-quality spiritual programs like the one you are listening to now. It also assists us in our outreach to areas around the globe, touching literally millions of souls via the World Wide Web. Our highly rated free Discerning Hearts app allows you to access over a thousand audio files as well as video content now available on our expanding YouTube channel. We've been able to offer online spiritual seminar retreats with Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, and Deacon James Keating. The heart of our mission is to help foster authentic spiritual formation for the seeking soul so they can fully encounter the living Christ and share in his mission of healing hearts and spreading the good news to the world. Please, won't you help us to continue this important work of evangelization by donating today to DiscerningHearts.com. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to DiscerningHearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. DiscerningHearts.com presents Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Dr. Turek is a professor of theology and chair of Domatic Theology at St. Patrick's Seminary and University. She received her doctorate in sacred theology at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Her other publications include Towards a Theology of God the Father, Atonement, Soundings in Biblical Trinitarian and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Here is your host, Evan Collins. Absolutely. And I mean, kind of just like even to make it a little bit more tangible. Jesus had a personal historical existence. We Sometimes we have this idea of like the event was one thing that happened and that was that, but this was what Jesus's entire life was as lived. And so he's revealing to us what we are to be imitators for. You kind of um, talk about it when you talk in your section of the book on toward a spiritual theology of atonement. You talk about the objective dimensions of redemption, and you say it refers to what the Holy Trinity did for us antecedent of our personal consent. So meaning, and just for anyone else, that just means this is what God did, full stop, we weren't involved. Right, Um, independently independently of of our consent. We had no personal cooperation there. So there's that objective moment. That's why we were yet sinners. That's what St. Paul talks about. Yes. While we were still sinners, the Father so loved us, he sent his only, all of these things, right? But then there is that accomplishment that Jesus does. He he totally does it, right? He accomplishes everything. But yet there's that mysterious thing of St. Paul uses, and we get this illusion even in St. Paul's like, my sufferings make up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought Jesus full stop atoned for everything. But you highlight this, and this is something that has been highlighted, especially by a pontificate like John Paul II's yes. and Pope Benedict XVI, yes. the subjective dimension, which is in complementarity to the objective dimension. Um, it doesn't mean relativistic, my truth, your truth, whoever's truth. This is the deeply personal aspect that's going on here because though the universal call to holiness redemption is universal it's always in particular persons there's no um uh, it's not just like the form of whatever has just 
dispersed into the ether and we're just kind of walking around in holiness now or whatever. It's like, no, these are things that God, he, it particularly manifests in our life. And so you say the subjective dimension, redemption, refers to the quote unquote space. And something that I want to highlight again here is that all of these terms are analogous. <laughs> we have to use analogy to talk about God because he's not a creature. He's not a creature. And so we have to use analogy. And that's why sometimes we can get um, confused or upset and we can say, what are you saying? God has passion? No, not in the same way that we do. But this is the only way we can understand it is to talk about it like this. So the subjective dimension of redemption refers to that space we were talking about. There's that place that can be entered into where God leaves us. We have a personal freedom. So we have this finite freedom. We can accept Christ's work of redemption, that act of infinite freedom. And we lay hold of it in faith. And so, and I'll say something for anyone who's reading through their catechism right now. I know it's very popular to read through the catechism right now, which is a good thing. There's something we talk about in the church called the obedience of faith. This is what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, This is the obedience of faith made manifest in our lives. And so what's happening is when we're baptized, and it's not just water is poured on us and we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you're a baby, you don't realize this, but your parents are making a profession of faith for you at yes. your baptism. So we're entering into the sonship, the second person of the Trinity in this like amazing way has opened up the means for us to be incorporated into the family of God. But we're entering into that and that's a profession of faith. It's not just a metaphysical ontological act that happens there. Like, you know, so you're baptized and we say, there's a mark on my soul. And that's true. But there's a mark on your soul that reveals the fullness of your identity, of who you were always were, which is a son or daughter of the father. And that shows you what it means to actually live your life. And that's what's so amazing about our faith is that it reveals to us what it means to live, what it means to really live. And then exactly what you're saying, but we don't live in paradise yet. Right. We live in a fallen world. We're east of Eden. Yes. I get that. I get that. Yeah. Here's how you can atone in me. Evan, you brought up the catechism. Here's one one great line that's in the, there's so many good lines. Here's one that I remember being in the book. Catechism. (laughs) It says, Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lives and he lives it in us. Notice that wondrous exchange. I'll say this again, Christ, by baptism, we just said, by baptism, we are born of God. We're drawn into, we share in the son's own generation from the father. By nature, we now share in this generation from the father in the son by grace and so what does it mean what does it look like in the concrete christ the son and sending his spirit of sonship in our hearts he enables us to live in him all that he himself lives they really stop when you when we're reading the gospel there is the kind of the script of our lives and that's how the Holy Spirit manifests. So, yeah. so people think the Holy Spirit, they're like, what does he even do? That's it. He's, a, he's that's, yes, drawing us into to live a Christ sonship. Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lives. 
And also he's living it in us. He's living it in us. So Christ, who was all that he himself lives as a revealer of the Father, as a toner for sin, he's living that in us. Yeah. And we're living that in him. Mm-hmm. Sharing in sonship is to share in, in Christ the Son's life purpose, to share in the Son's mission. And I mean, and something that we, I think we might have mentioned briefly, and if we haven't, it definitely would be important to mention this notion of vicarious representation. And that, I think, highlights what we're talking about here because because Christ vicariously represents us in his passion, we're able to enter into that mode um, through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, we're able to enter into that mode. And so can you explain what vicarious representation is? Yes, and I'll I'll begin with, of course, Christ, who is the ultimate, preeminent, vicarious atoner. It means because Christ himself is sinless. He had no sins of his own for which to atone. Remember when he approaches St. John the Baptist, you know, in the Jordan, and and, and St. John says, hey, I should be, you know, you should be baptizing me. What the heck? (laughs) And Jesus says, let this be for now to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the Father's plan. The point being, though, that Christ, who is the bearer of the world's sin, among all the sins of the world, not a single one belongs to Christ Jesus, okay? He remains sinless, and the sins he bears are totally the sins of others. That's a vicarious bearer of sin or vicarious representative is someone who takes the place of, takes on the burdens of another. Christ takes our place and bears the burdens, the effects of our sins. None of those effects are due to his own sinfulness. But as you just said, and as I quoted the catechism, Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself oh, can i can i chime in yeah yeah go go and only christ could do that because he was the god man so even socrates in all of his brilliance of standing up for truth when he drinks the hemlock or whatever and, and dies or any account that you've seen where somebody does a courageous act that we would call martyrdom a witness to some principle they might have been able to do some type of a thing where they were really making a difference for some for some small finite thing but only the god man jesus christ could represent every single person yes. past present future who would ever live will ever live in a vicarious way yes only jesus yes. could do that because he is the god man and so i think that that's key because then we'll see what actually, so then what is the difference then if only Jesus can do this and then we get to participate in his representation through our sonship, um, that's in his sonship. What is the difference then between somebody's representative atoning life versus say a Socrates drinking the hemlock or something like that? Why is that different? Now, when you say, different, let's say Socrates, what I would say is different about Socrates is he's not, certainly not consciously and intentional, opening up his heart and soul to allow God's fathering love to empower him to 
image him as he bears the errors and sins of those who are putting him to death. That's not Socrates' intention. Mm-hmm. All right. He's, don't, the story of Socrates is not the story of a son who is living in relation to a father, who is on a mission from this father to reveal the true face, the true love of this God, and to atone or do away with the sins even of his executioners. Okay, you see, so so the story of Socrates lacks that interpersonal relationship and the whole drama of a, as you said, a universal savior who's not only enduring the mistreatment of others, but Christ, unlike Socrates, is enduring it in order power to bear it away. I mean, he's truly enduring mistreatment and misjudgment. Christ is enduring mistreatment and misjudgment in such a way that he is annihilating, expiating, atoning for that misjudgment. Socrates isn't doing that. He can recognize he's being misjudged in a noble spirit. He's bearing it, but he's he's not doing away with the sins, the misjudgment of the others on their behalf. All he can do is give a, for others, a model of a noble manner of death. Christ is much more than that. He is literally bearing the misjudgments of others such that he is bearing their guilt and redeeming them from the effects of their misjudgments and their wrongdoings. We'll return to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. 
from the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. That others may be esteemed more than I. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. That others may be preferred to me in everything. That others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. We now return to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Yeah, and there's nothing, there's nothing that compares. There's no mythological story that talks about suffering that can compare to what Jesus endures in his passion and his response as well. It's just incomprehensible in a, on this purely human, like secular, I guess, mindset. You cannot grasp it. This man who did nothing wrong whatsoever, only did what was good, true, beautiful, his entire life. And then he, the very people that should have recognized him for who he was and did in a sense, because that Palm Sunday, we can't, so they, they get him, they worship him. They say, oh, Hosanna, like he's going to be the savior of all of us. This is the son of David and all these things. And then Christ comes and he gets betrayed by one of his closest friends in his inner circle and sold for 30 pieces of silver. And then it's like nothing basically. (laughs) And He is taken, completely mocked, scourged, abused. Every single person that was praising him previously has turned his back on him and is mocking him. All of his friends have abandoned him. And then the only thing that would seemingly be consolation when he's being completely unjustly tried by his own people, it's a kangaroo court, it's ridiculous. And then Pilate is a coward and doesn't want to actually release him, even though he knows he's innocent and declares he's innocent multiple times still desires for him to be executed. He's almost going to die. That's the only reason why Simon of Serene carries the cross with them is because they're like, we don't want him to die this way. We want him to die a little way that's worse. So let's get this guy to help him carry it. He gets there. And as he's dying, he has to watch his own mother watch him die. And yet what Jesus utters on the cross, those seven last words, one of them is, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And then to the other thief, he says, you will be with me in paradise. And then he entrusts his mother to St. John. And he says, I thirst. And what does he thirst for? Our salvation. <laughs> he, he's not saying, I'm thirsty right now. Please give me, because he, he doesn't drink. He doesn't drink um, the vinegar initially. He doesn't drink it. He says, when he says, I thirst, he's saying it want our salvation. Now he does drink a little bit then, and then he gives up his spirit, right? And then like, so there's this unrepeatable quality about what happens in the passion. And it's not just a narrative. Like we said, 
This is a personal, historical, concrete reality that happened. This really did happen. And Jesus, through the church, through the sacraments, through the Holy Spirit, has enabled us to participate in that mode of existence in the sinful world. So by the Holy Spirit, as sons of God in the Son, we can live in this world marked by sin, and we can atone. And then to kind of highlight something that John Paul II's pontificate really brought to light, and Benedict the Sixteenth pontificate really brought to light as well, this is the key insight of the Second Vatican Council, which was all about Christ, is that we are universally called to the holiness of God. Every single Christian is. And you highlighted this. I thought this was so insightful in your book, is that the universal call to holiness is a call to the vicarious bearing of guilt of all in our particular lives, in our particular lives. So this isn't just a, um, uh, oh, you can just say that and that sounds nice. But this is something that actually God wants to manifest in our individual day-to-day life when we're living it. And so I wanted to ask how that might look for someone, how participating in that vicarious representation, that bearing away of sin, the guilt of others, how that might look and why that is holiness for us. I think we've already said it. That's what the son did. But how would that look for us? Evan, we can start with the most radical and awesome and breathtaking examples. Doing so might initially lead our listeners, our viewers to say, well, that's well beyond me. Forget it. We all have a place. We, we can't, shouldn't avoid this calling to share in Christ some shit means to live out filial love in this fallen world, and that inevitably involves us in a tone. But let's start with the best examples. In my book, I offer two women saints. One saint very dear to me, St. Therese of Lisieux. I had mentioned earlier that I myself was a Carmelite for six years, and my religious name actually was uh, Sister Peter Therese. And uh, I had chosen Therese because Therese did, right after I had that experience, once I beheld the pierced one and saw him as the revealer of the Father, the Father who's rich in mercy, a mercy that's given me antecedent prior to anything I've done. It's not a matter of me earning that love. It's given me an advance. Once I saw that, Providentially, I was um, taking a course on spirituality, and the very next saint whose work I had to read was Therese and her autobiography. She taught me more about this. So in my book, well, I, I talk about Therese. She is a Carmelite, and the Carmelite vocation, as you well know, is actually designed to draw the Carmelites deeply into not only contemplating the mystery of the cross event, but in contemplating it and seeing it, you can then live it, participate in it more intentionally with fuller awareness. So the contemplation leads to an enlightenment and understanding that guides orient one's way of living. So you're called to atone. 
Carmelites live a life of penance. They take up the cross and follow their crucified beloved every single day. So, Therese, as you know, toward the end of her life, actually 18 months out from her death, remember how she coughs up blood for the first time. And the coughing off of blood was a sign of her tuberculosis. Well, the physical pain that she faced in the coming months was not the worst pain that she suffered. She testifies to being plunged spiritually into a night, a spiritual night, a state of spiritual darkness that she understands to be a participation in the passion of Christ. She explains in several places, she says, what was happening to her, something she didn't contrive, something that took her by surprise, and that she had to discern and figure out was this. You know how God made his son to be sin so that those who became sinners can become sons once again. Well, St. Therese realized that in following her Christ, she too was made to be sin in a certain fashion. And the sin that was most prominent in France during her day was the sin of atheism. I mean, intentional atheism. Little Therese became aware of the growing influence of atheism in Catholic France. And she remarked earlier in her life, she said, I can't, I cannot understand how a human being could live meaningfully, intentionally, in the absence of God. And yet what her cross came to be was that this spiritual night into which she was plunged involved her actually having to take on the consciousness of atheists. If you think it helpful, Evan, I can read her own words where she actually describes the state of her consciousness as one who is bearing the sins of unbelief of her fellow Frenchmen. This makes, if you're yes. with me. Yeah, I know. Okay. I think that would be helpful because just to call it back, this is what Christ experienced. And so that's why Therese experiences this is because this is what Christ experienced. And it sounds difficult to understand even to me. So I'd love for you to read it again. <laughs> now, now, again, up for the viewers and listeners, we're starting well, with Christ and then we're starting with those whose sharing in Christ's passion is most prodigal and awesome. And here we go. But let's let's see it writ large. And then that should enable us to more readily discern the smaller ways in which we ourselves can participate in the cross of Christ. Here's Therese. I told the good God that I was happy not to enjoy heaven on earth, the experience of his presence, the consolation, the felt consolation of his nearness, in order that he may open heaven forever to poor unbelievers. She means atheists. So notice 
Yes, she says. It's like her agony in the garden. I am willing. I am willing not to enjoy heaven on earth. The felt presence of my father. In order that, if this is purposeful, in order that my father may open heaven forever to poor atheists, those who lack faith. Okay, next quote. God permitted my soul to be swamped by the thickest darkness. Here's the night that descends upon her. So that, notice how purposeful it all is. And this is why it's going to be important for us later, how we can discern the kinds of darkness, spiritual darkness, that we or others suffer. Therese understands its purposefulness. So that, so that, for this reason, because of this. She says, the Lord permitted my soul to be swamped by the thickest darkness, so that the thought of heaven, which had been so sweet to me, became nothing but a torment, because it seemed nothing but an illusion, as it is in the minds of atheists. This trial was not just to last for a few days or a few weeks. It was to last until the time determined by the good God. That time has not yet come. One more with Therese. And this one is really where she's in. She begins to describe what it's like. This taking on where she's made to be sin in terms of made to take on the consciousness of atheists. But as a believer, this is the paradox. She suffers, she suffers the night of atheism as a believer, just as Christ will suffer the absence of his father as the son who's closest to the father's heart. Those two always go together, paradoxically. Quoting Therese, when exhausted by the darkness that surrounds me, I try to refresh my heart with the memory of the luminous country to which I aspire where God is, the presence of God. My torment grows twice as great, burrowing sinners' voices. The darkness seems to mock me, saying, okay, these are those voices at the foot of her cross, mocking her. They say, you dream of light. You dream of eternally possessing the Creator. You believe that one day you will emerge from the fog which surrounds you. Keep going then. Proceed. Look forward to death. But it will not give you what you are hoping for. Possession of God. But only an ever deeper night. The night of nothingness. The darkness of extinction. End of quote. Though in, those are the voices. And they're demonic in source, Right? Those are the voices that mock her from the foot of her cross. And they're the voices of, uh, they're demonic voices, but now that are filtered through the mindset of modern atheism. That's Therese's cross. Okay, and one more line from her. She says, these very great pains, and she describes what they are. I offer these very great pains to obtain the light of faith for poor unbelievers, for poor atheists. This is Christ-like love, and this is the suffering of love 
that, like Christ, she's willing to bear. Instead of condemning the atheist as such, she said, I will, in and through Christ, just as Christ says, he is now enabling me by the gift of his spirit of sonship. He is enabling me to live all that he himself lived. And he's living it in me under the conditions of modern atheism. And now I am willing, I will die their death. I will bear the effects of their sin, the atheist estrangement from God. Therese, she consciously suffers the mindset of atheists. What makes it unique, this suffering, is that she suffers it as a believer. This is why it's, it's long suffering. It's the suffering of a believer, the suffering of one who believes in God and loves God, but who is asked to endure the mindset of atheists, the effects of their sins. So it's the believer who suffers the absence of God. It's the lover of God who suffers his seeming absence. And that's atonement. Yes. And she can only do it by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. and she consented to it. And yes. So, and you need, you, yes. it's only one who knows God and assents to God and loves God in filial fashion that can bear the seeming absence of God, estrangement, alienation from God, and bear it away, transform it, make it into an expression of filial love, asserting itself against him. So it's Trez, the believer in God and the lover of God, who enters into the atheist felt absence of God, and she bears it for them. And in doing so in her way, in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, she bears it away. That's love. And I'm sorry, that's the sign of authentic sonship. That's the sign of authentic belief. You enter into the darkness the effects of sin. And by doing so, always letting God sustain you in belief, sustain you in belief. You endure the effects of the unloving unbelievers and you bear those effects away. That's cool. That's the Christian vocation. And that's why this theology and spirituality of atonement matters so much. Christians, we have to awaken this is good world culture. Awaken to the dignity and the awesomeness of our calling. Wake up and know what it involves. Yes. And, and, and get on with your mission like Therese. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Turek and Evan Collins in our next episode. You've been listening to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek and your host, Evan Collins. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, as well as in the free Discerning Hearts app, or on your favorite podcast streaming platform. You can also view this conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. To learn more about the book on which this series is based, Go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. 
hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel this worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek.